The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing, the last one of 2023. For those of you who might be new to the show, that means this is the week where I don't really have a topic to talk about, and you call in or email in with whatever questions that have been bugging you. Uh in regards, I don't know, some concept or some deal you're trying to work on or just like how to navigate the real estate business, whatever you want to do. But basically that means that without you, there is no show. So to get your questions from you to me, you can either call at 877-772-9658. Again, 877-772-9658. Or you can send them via email to askvina at gmail.com. Uh, I won't read your full name on the air if you email it in, but it would be nice to know where you are emailing from because sometimes that changes the answer to specific questions that, you know, I might need to say deed of trust instead of mortgage or something like that. So again, phone number 877-772-9658, email askvina at gmail.com. So while we're waiting for those to roll on in, let's uh, just get some housekeeping stuff out of the way. Uh, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati has its last in-person meeting of the year tomorrow night. If you happen to be listening from somewhere in the Greater Cincinnati area, it is uh, the annual holiday party. Uh, there's a dinner, there's some drinks sponsored by Dayton Capital Partners, and then there is the Best and Worst Deals of the Year contest, which is I don't know. That's just always a fun time because members get up and they talk about the deal that they did this year that they thought was the most creative or the most interesting or the most profitable. Or, of course, the great category is the worst deal of the year. And you you learn a lot. You get to know about people. And there's lots of networking time in there, too. I believe that you can still get a registration. I think they, we had to cut off the registrations today because, uh, you know, the hotel wants to know how many dinners they have to put out. Uh, but it's at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. Now, that doesn't mean that's the very last Cincinnati RIA event of the year because there's still the whole rest of December and there's all the online meetings and all that sort of thing. So while you're there... Just let me put a bug in your ear and say, check out what is happening this Saturday online via Cincinnati Rhea. It's an all-day 
uh, how to start and manage a real estate investing business class. Now, notice I said start a real estate investing business because it's about all those kind of side things that you have to do if you're going to actually operate and stay around and not get in trouble and all that sort of stuff. Things like, you know, entity setup and um good bookkeeping practices and there'll be lots of information about like here's some good software you can get and uh, you know systems and how to hire people and all all that sort of stuff that you know you don't we we get so obsessed with the how do I find a deal how do I rehab the deal how do I sell the deal how do I rent the, the property that we unfortunately sometimes give short shrift to the part where we can file our taxes on time and have them be accurate and where we're keeping track of actually who has paid the rent and who hasn't in an organized way and all that sort of thing. So that class is coming up this Saturday. It is online, which means you don't actually have to be here in the greater Cincinnati area to take it. And again, the website is CincinnatiRia.com. So we're going to see if... I can answer any of these initial questions that have come in in a minute or two here because we are, in fact, coming up on a break. And sometimes people ask questions that I go, wow, that's going to be a while. Um, Yeah, I think I can get this one. This is from David. He says, I haven't pursued marketing to people who are the heirs in estates because the county I live in has an has a probate website but it's a bit confusing and also I'm impatient to try to learn how to search it I, th- I think what you meant to say David was you're too impatient <laughs> to try and learn how to search it are all counties the same if so is there a different website that's easier to navigate or do I just need to go to the courthouse? Okay. Wow, David. So it might be a good discipline for you to sit down for two hours and say, I'm going to figure out how to search this site because man, there is there. If you happen to be lucky enough to be in a County where there is a court site for the probate court and where the information that you need there is there. Like, is there real estate in the estate? Because if not, no sense sending them an email. Is the executor's name and address right there where it's easy to get? Because that's actually who you want to contact, not the heirs. Um, does it say who the attorney is? That That's interesting information that you might not use. Does it say... Um, maybe where the real estate is like that, that maybe doesn't matter as much. If you see real estate, you see a name and, a, and an address of an executor, you're probably good to go. I, I like to take the additional step where it is possible of seeing who the heirs are, because if the heir is a spouse, I generally don't contact those folks because I find that the spouses usually want to stay in the house for another two to five years. And, you know, they, either don't answer the mail or they answer it in a way that is get me off your list. So if you were to spend a couple of hours and figure out how to do that, then your next step could be get one of those little screen capture things. There's probably one built into your computer where you can capture a video of what you're doing on your screen and walk through it 
and talk through it. So say, okay, so first we go to this website and then we look for case numbers that start like this and then we click here. And then when we go over here, we can see the name and address of the executor. So we wanna capture that on a spreadsheet. And then we go over here and see whether there's real estate in the estate. And if there is, then that is a good lead. Because if you did that, then you could send that off to a virtual assistant who could do it so you didn't have to do it anymore. Going down to the courthouse, I mean, that that's an option. And there's I know people who have to do that because their, their counties literally do not have estate websites. But that's a thing that you're going to get tired of really fast. It's the slow way to do it. It's it, sometimes the information you get is just completely dependent on who's sitting behind the desk and whether they're feeling good about handing you files or not. I, I used to do that back in the days before the internet. And I would spend the entire day down there and I'd walk away with like maybe 50 potential estates to contact. And you can do that every week online because it's just a lot faster. So that's my recommendation to you. And yes, counties are different. Some have no sites. Some have sites that are hard to navigate. Some have sites that are easy to navigate, but don't have the information you want. You seem to have one that's hard to navigate, but there, and I would learn how to navigate it if I were you. So thank you for your question, David. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. It's question and answer week. If you have questions, big or small, give me a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It is the first, the first, <laughs> sorry, I just got a funny question and I try to read it and talk at the same time. The first Wednesday of the month, which is normally question and answer week, not always, but most of the time, uh, which means it's kind of like an open mic day. If you got a question, um, let's hear it. It's, you can give me a call at 877-772-9658, or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Just got one from Pete in Kentucky. He says, wondering if you're going to have some education about purchasing at the courthouse. So, man, I'm always looking for topics for this show. You wouldn't believe how difficult it is to come up with 52 ideas a year for 26 years in a row or whatever it has been. The reason that I have not done that particular topic is that it is so different depending on like, like even within a state, it can be different county to county. And I am taking this based on the last question as meaning like going to the courthouse and using public records to find potential sellers. So that is, that is very different, like different things. That last question was about probate and going to probate court. There's states where it's not even called probate court, it's called surrogate court. So, you know, if I have somebody here saying, yeah, what you need to do is you're going to need to go down to probate court. People in New Jersey are going to be like, what's that? I've never heard of a probate court. And then they're going to start calling people and trying to find the probate court. And they're never going to find it because that's not what it's called. If what you mean is, um, so, so the, the best place to get that kind of local information is from your local friends and fellow real estate investment association members. If what you're talking about is like purchasing at the courthouse steps, 
So in other words, there's been a foreclosure, there's been a tax delinquency and the, the, the tax deed is being sold off or uh, sorry, tax. Yeah, tax deed is being sold off or tax lien is being sold off. That's another thing that we we could talk about that generally. I mean, I've got I've got I, I know people who they go to the courthouse every week and bid on properties. But again, the details of it would be very state by state and in some cases, county by county. Um, generally, doing that kind of purchasing at the courthouse steps is a little bit risky because there is not a state in the union where the the trustee or the sheriff or the commissioner, whoever's doing the auction, does not say in the ads and then say at the steps and make you sign a thing before they take your money that says, we are not warranting anything about this property. We don't know what the interior condition is. We don't know what the condition of the title is. We don't know what the person who's living there right now who you're going to have to kick out in order to get possession might do to it between now and the time that they move out. So we're we're giving you zero <laughs> warranties of any kind. We don't know what the value is, you know, even though even though there's a value usually on the on the sheriff sale or trustee sale ads. Um, it'll say the property's been appraised at 184. You, you know, that's not a real appraisal, right? In most places, the sheriff sends somebody to drive by the property to make sure it's still standing and look at the outside. And then they maybe do an automated valuation model, but they have no idea what the interior condition of the property is. And then in a lot of states like Ohio, the minimum amount you can bid is some percentage of that fake appraisal. 66% here in Ohio, two thirds. So if the sheriff says, okay, so this thing's worth $660,000. So the minimum bid is $440,000. That means at least at the initial sale, you can't bid less than 440, but maybe the entire inside is trashed and it's only worth 300. And you don't find that out, of course, until you have paid your money, gotten possession, change the locks, gone in, and you're like, oh my gosh, this house, there's nothing in here. There's no walls. There's no plumbing. There's no, and I had no way of knowing that because the sheriff couldn't let me into the house beforehand. And now I want to give it back. Nope. Not only can you not give it back, if you find that, if you find that out between the day of the, the, the day you made the winning bid and the time that you actually have to pay, which might be. Might be the same day, depends on the state, might be a week later, might be 30 days later. You can't not buy it. It's it, it's like a crime to have the winning bid at a sheriff's sale and then not buy it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of risks in buying at the courthouse steps, whether it's a again a tax sale, a foreclosure sale, a marshal sale, you know, whatever it happens to be. And there are people who, you know, they're, they're big enough and do enough business that they can absorb the risk of, you know, every 25th deal they get that way turns out to be a loser and they just have to sell it for less than what they paid for it. But for most individual investors, being that person who bought that 25th deal is super bad news. So that's not, that's not something I typically recommend to folks who aren't okay with losing some money. I, I remember about, um, five years ago, I got a, 
I got a call from a, a person who was a member of Cincinnati Rea, and I had seen them at meetings, but it's a really big group, so I, I hadn't had any deep conversations with them. And he said, listen, um, I've got this problem. I bought this house at Sheriff's Sale. Um, I drove by the outside. It looked really good. The tenants were moving out. So I, I was like, okay, great. It'll be vacant. And I just got possession of it. And when I went inside, it has a really big foundation problem. And my strategy is I buy these properties and then I sell them to a particular large buyer. And that the, one of the very few requirements that that particular large buyer has is no foundation problems. So I'm wondering what I can do now. And I said, well, I'll go take a look at it. Because he didn't want to rehab it. He wanted to wholesale it. I said, I'll go take a look at it. And I, I went and looked at that property. And I was like, yeah, it's going to have like a crack in the foundation. And he's just freaking out. Nope. That foundation had failed. Three of the four walls of the foundation had horizontal cracks all the way across all three walls. And they had moved. So it wasn't just a crack. It was like you could stick a quarter in to where the crack was because it had moved inward. And I called him back and I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, this is, this is probably a $50,000 fix. And for what you paid plus the 50,000, you're in over your head. Like, it, like it, you're upside down. I, I think all you can do is try and sell to somebody who maybe is a foundation expert and can do it for cheaper and you lose a little money instead of losing a lot of money. So yeah, I mean, those are the stories that stick out in your your brain. The other 24 people who bought that day probably got themselves a pretty decent deal. But yeah, so education about that sort of thing is difficult on a national radio show, partly because it is so different from place to place, like the technicalities of where do I go bid? Is there a, um, is it once, once I bid, and when can I even risk doing any work on it? Because some states have a right of redemption where the seller can come back six months or in some cases two years later and say, oh, I have the money. I'm buying my house back. Uh, when do you have to pay? What form does that payment have to take? All of that stuff is very, very different from state to state. So again, going to direct you to your local real estate association and or local real estate friends for information on that. A uh, question from SK, who, remember I said, tell me where you're from if you're going to send me an email. She's from the middle of nowhere mountains, Colorado. <laughs> that could be an actual place. I mean, there is a South Park, Colorado, as it turns out. And I've been there and you'll never guess what the main tourist attractions are about there. Uh, she says, I saw a presentation and had some questions about shared affordable housing for seniors. So she went to the Cincinnati RIA uh, presentation on that a couple of months ago. Uh, that was a couple of, or actually four, I think, different people who did different kinds of shared housing. So interested in affordable shared housing for seniors, but not necessarily the assisted living type, more the golden girls model. So that that's more like, so there's full on assistant living, assisted living, like, you know, Isabella Guarino and Mark Hutton and that crowd do where you've got, you know, eight bedrooms, all of which have their own full bath. And you've got um, separate 
people in each bedroom and you've got a, a an in-person medical worker who's there all the time to you know give give pills as needed and whatnot and then there's what people are starting to call the golden girls model which is more of like a a rooming house for elderly ladies that don't need any medical assistance they just kind of want to you know they want someplace cheap nice that they can kind of live together as a community and again it's usually one per bedroom and there's a um, you know a lease for each bedroom and those can be very profitable as well uh, but they they typically do not require licensing because there's no medical people there's no you're not serving meals you're not it's not like a a b&b for elderly ladies it is more like just a what they used to call a rooming house back in the day um, and so they, they do their own meals and all that sort of stuff. So suggestions for resources, organization and organizations and funding. I'm going to say your best resources here are going to be other people who are doing it. I am unaware. I am unaware of any like course you can buy or anything about that particular model. But I do know quite a few people who are doing it and. They're, they're doing it because, yeah, that, that house is going to rent for more than it would as a standard single family. But mostly they also do it because they have like a heart for that population. You know, they, they maybe have their own elderly mother somewhere who doesn't want to go full on assisted living, can't really live alone anymore, doesn't want to live with her kids, whatever, uh, would love to have three other ladies her age to live with and hang out with. Find some of those people. Um, I'll actually send you back. I don't want to name names on the air because these are people without courses. They're just people who do it. And I will I will send you some names of people who are also co-remembers that you could reach out to about that. Um, organizations. Well, there there are organizations for the full-on assisted living. And there, there are organizations for other types of um, specialty group housing, but there really aren't for this because again, it's kind of a rooming house. It's just kind of a thing. I set this up because I thought it would be a good population to serve. And so that, that, there's not like the national association of golden girls houses. <laughs> Although maybe you could create one. You're living in the middle of nowhere, Colorado. I assume you have time on your hands. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe you're seeing and looking at elk all the time. Uh, funding for these deals would be no different than they would be for any rental property. You ought to be able to get a Fannie Mae loan because they just, they base it on the, the Fannie Mae basis, whether you're approved for a loan on your income and also on your, on the value of the house, right? So this isn't any different really. Um, private funding, owner financing, all that stuff that would work on any rental house would work on that. Okay. So. Thank you for your question. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, as you all may have noticed by my just general ramblings here. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Uh, any question you have, I will try my best to answer it. 877-772-9658 is the number. I'm going to give that again. 877 877- 772-9658 or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com 
Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Question and Answer Week. So that means it is, you know, time for you to ask all those questions that don't seem to fit in with other shows. Um, And you have about 20 more minutes to do that, so... If you're sitting there with your hand hovering over the phone going, I don't know, should I call? Am I brave enough? Yeah, get brave enough because there won't be another one until 2024. 877-772-9658. And you can also send it to askvina at gmail.com. So here's an interesting question for or scenario from Sheila. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes it's actually better to call in because, uh, like, I can get more to the right answer for the situation if I can ask questions back. But um, so this, unfortunately, is a typical scenario. She says, I have an elderly seller who owns a house free and clear in North Carolina. She moved to New York over 10 years ago and then found out through relatives that there are people living in her house in North Carolina. If I were to get the property under contract with the seller and the contract includes includes contingencies such as automatic extension and partner approval clauses, would this allow me time to have the tenants removed and how can I the wholesaler evict an unknown tenant who is living in the house who does not have a lease agreement between them and the seller. Oh boy, Sheila, that is a can of worms right there. Um, so no, nobody other than the owner of a property or a fiduciary representative of the owner of the property can evict tenants in most places. Okay, like you, you can't say, well, I've got a contract on this house and I want these people out. Um, no eviction court is going to allow you to evict somebody under those circumstances. But uh, it is a great question because these circumstances happen all the time. I can't now tell you how many times I've either gotten that call of somebody moved into my house and I, I'm afraid of them and I can't get them out and or, you know, I live out of town or, you know, my mom's in a nursing home and somebody moved into her house. So, yeah, it's a, it's a thing you're going to find over and over again. I, Sheila, happen to have a real estate license, which means that I can become a fiduciary for a seller in terms or an owner in terms of becoming their property manager. And as long as we also have an attorney to go to court, I can deliver notice. You know, I can deliver a three-day notice. That's what you do in a, in uh, Cincinnati is the, in Ohio is the first thing. And then, you know, go, go through the process of delivering whatever, whatever other paperwork I can go to court, say, yes, three day notice was delivered. It's really the owner who's doing that eviction though. They're doing it through their property manager, which is me. So that is one scenario you could you could go ahead and get the purchase contract and instead of saying, you know, it closes on January 1st because you don't know how long this is going to take for reasons that we'll talk about in a minute, you could say, uh, I will close within 30 days of the time that the court removes the tenants and that I, I am therefore able to go in and inspect the property. 
So it's a kind of a, a floating closing date because this is a, this is an action that so the owner is going to have to do something here. Um, the owner could also transfer the property into a land trust and the trustee could do all of this and the owner could still be the owner through the beneficial interest until all of this uh, was taken care of. Um, rarely and only in fairly small rural areas, you can do what you feel like you should be able to do here, which is have the owner call the sheriff and say, somebody has broken into my house and has moved in and the sheriff will just come and take them out. But mostly, even though they are squatters, they have zero rights to the property. Um, you're going to get told by any law enforcement that you have to go through the eviction process on them. Now, the eviction process itself gets a little complicated here as well because you do not have anybody to name. So this is where you talk to the local eviction attorney and say, how do we write this eviction notice? Because they're, they're going to know whether it's a three-day notice or a 10-day notice or what, what it is in your area and and what is our cause for eviction because you don't want the cause to be non-payment of rent because that implies that there was rent due and there wasn't <laughs> there was no lease there you know they they they're, they're trespassing they stole the use of the property so the attorney can direct uh you and the owner if you end up being the property manager or you you know hook them up with a property manager or whatever and uh say how it needs to be stated, how it needs to be delivered. And when this has happened to me, which it has on on a number of occasions, uh, the attorney has recommended that we just evict John Doe at all. Because that's that's all you can do. It's not like you're going to knock on the door and say, hey, I need to evict you. What's your name? You could, of course, ask like neighbors and people like that if they happen to know who it is. But you're still doing an at all eviction because even if you get a name, you're probably not going to get the name of everybody who's living there. And then you cross your fingers and you hope that when they actually get the official notice from the court that they just decide, well, we had a good run of free housing here and they move out. Um, And then you can go forward with, you know, getting a getting the locks changed and going in and seeing what you really have and if the offer that you made by that drive-by that you did was a good one or you need to talk to the seller again about what the price was. So there's going to be some complications here, but if you will follow through with this, if you'll you'll be the one to handle the owner and maybe push her a little bit because sometimes they, the owner gets confused by what the attorney wants and you have to help her, help them give her the right information and so on. Uh, you're probably the only one who will do that. So it's yeah, hold, holding on to these deals tightly. Like, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna follow this out to the end, even if the owner seems helpless and the first property manager I talk to doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And 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 then, um, yeah, you might have a good deal here. I don't know. Now, one of the things that you often find in these houses that have been occupied by squatters for a long time. Unfortunately, is that um they have never had the plumbing turned on. I'll, I'll just I'll just let you sit with what that means. Um, sometimes they have had the electric turned on, which could be interesting because then maybe you could find out whose name the electric bill is in. Uh, it if they haven't had heat on because they haven't turned the power on, then often the way they are heating the property is through literally like fires in cans. I mean, I've seen all kinds of stuff that the property turns out to be way more damaged than you could have pictured 
from what was going on on the outside. So it'll be a step-by-step thing here, but I think you should probably pursue it and help this homeowner out. So thanks for that interesting question, Sheila. Let's go to the phones. Uh, We'll talk to Jay on line one in Cincinnati. Jay, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi there. Hi, Jay. I have a statement and then a question following that. The statement is that the Hamilton County Auditor site, hamiltoncountyauditor.org, is excellent with one exception. The question is, what are your thoughts on the use of of buyers and sellers uh, who put property into an LLC so they don't have to disclose the selling price, which uh, robs taxpayers of of tax income. And it is was described by the Hamilton County Recorder's Office as being the LLC loophole, but apparently nobody's done anything about it legally um so i i and most of the investors i know do buy properties through llc's i mean that's because that's that's what our accountants and our (laughs) attorneys tell us to do but it absolutely the 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 title company still sends the statement down to the auditor and the and the tax collector that says this is how much was paid for this property and it still shows up on the site when you see a transfer to an LLC that's a $0 transfer, and I've seen those many, many times on the auditor's site, it is usually one of three things that is going on. If the property is purchased in a uh, distressed public sale, so tax sale uh, from the land bank, uh, foreclosure sale, the auditor intentionally records it as zero because they don't want it used as a comp in a, in a tax you know, I'm I'm coming down to I'm coming downtown to say lower my taxes, and they don't want the distressed sale used as one of the comps. So that's that's one scenario, but they they still collect the taxes on that. Okay, the second scenario, which is it's not as evil as I think you think it is, and maybe the auditor thinks it is, is um, many times somebody will they'll either buy a property in their own name, and then they will talk to their accountant and their accountant should say, no, 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 you need to have it in an LLC. And so they will transfer it from their name to their own LLC. So there hasn't really been a sale, no money changed hands. They obviously didn't charge their LLC to take their property. And so it is recorded as a $0 sale because it was a $0 sale. And there's no transfer tax on that. The, The real estate taxes stay the same. Everything is exactly the same. The other, the only other time that you see zero dollar LLC sales, in my experience, because I, you know, again, I'm on that site. It is an excellent site. Whoever, whoever is in charge of that site rocks. <laughs> it's, it's easy to use. It's, you know, it's got all the good information on it. Um, sometimes, like, and I, I have done this. People will consolidate LLCs. So I, I looked at my how many LLCs I had and I went, this is just stupid. There's, it's too much paperwork. It's too much, whatever. And I, I'll take two LLCs and I'll combine them into one new one and I'll transfer the properties into that one. And again, it's a $0 sale. It didn't, it changed hands, but it didn't actually change hands. It's still the same people. So I'm not sure what the recorder and the auditor, the auditor knows that this is happening because they're getting full data on the back end about 
what has happened, including a piece of paper that you have to fill out that says this is a effectively a sale from me to me. It is exempt. I'm I'm not sure what they think is happening that's so that's taking money from the taxpayers in some way. Okay, I think scenario number two is the is what makes the most sense for the situations that I have seen, specifically with the fellow who goes around the country and buys, well, in Cincinnati, he bought the former jail. Previous to that, it was Pewdipol Brewing, Mm -hmm. and he's converting it into uh, artist spaces. Mm. It's about an eight-story building. And if you look up that address, as I did a couple of months ago, it shows zero dollars. So, so did no. he? So, so obviously he didn't pay zero dollars for it. Unless, I mean, those you're you're talking about properties there that I think it were were in some way publicly owned. Yes, and they they may was, literally have given them to him because he promised to spend ten million dollars renovating them they do that sometimes so it might have legitimately been a zero dollar sale oh okay and this may have been one of those port of cincinnati yes the very likely very likely okay. yes um because that, that that is who usually ends up with that sort of thing when the city just goes look this thing has been sitting vacant for 20 years and you guys who own it aren't doing anything with it so we're taking it and it's usually the port that ends up with it. And then the port might have literally given it to somebody who had a great business plan and, and said, okay, fine, we're giving it away. It's not really worth anything because it's been sitting vacant for 20 years. Um, but you also have promised us that you're going to do this much work on it over the course of this year and then next year. And then we have predicted that it's going to bring in a million dollars a year in tourist business or something, right? So there, there's not there's not a whole bunch of ways to like hide <laughs> that you have legitimately bought a property because um, when these when these LLC transfers are done that are more on the small scale it's more Mike here bought a rental property and he comes in and he's bragging to me about it he's like I bought my first rental property and I say when you say you bought it <laughs> do you mean you or do you mean you set up an LLC with the state and the LLC bought it? And he says, well, I bought it myself. And I say, well, you need to talk to your accountant and your attorney because they're going to say, put it in an LLC. And he goes and does that. He didn't really sell the property. He paid the transfer taxes when he bought the property in the first place, or actually the seller did. And then the the county's going to reevaluate it and you know charge him taxes probably on whatever it was he paid for it. But then this second transfer... In order to do it and get the get the recorder to record the deed, he's got to have a, an exemption form. Like they won't take a deed without either here's the taxes I need to pay because I sold the property or here's why I'm exempt. And they only have a limited number of exemption reasons. And I, I transferred it from me to a company that I fully own is one of those. And he'll don't worry, he'll pay the transfer taxes when he sells it. Good. Okay. Thank you. Thank yes, you. Yes, you've, you've, you've been excellent. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you for your call, Jay. 
All right, we're going to take one more quick break. Then we're going to go back to question and answer week. Uh, phone uh, phone number is 877-772-9658 or email is askbina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm always your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it's question and answer week. And as always, there has been quite an assortment of different sorts of questions. Um, I just want to comment on Jay's question a moment ago. I am really glad that he called here and asked that question because from both sides, all right, from the real estate investor perspective and from the everybody else perspective, there is a lot of just discussion within our own little in-groups about they think this and they do this and this is wrong. And guys, real estate investors, you know, it happens on our side too. Seeking to understand before you just get the opinions of other people who agree with you or even after you get the opinions of other people that agree with you would go a long, long way toward creating some, I don't know, um, agreement, meeting of minds, etc., between the the folks who are in this world of real estate and the folks who are not in the world of real estate. Because, come on, we all sit around and we go, oh, these sort of people, they want all rent to be free. Okay, have you ever actually talked to one of those people who you think thinks all rent should be free and asked them how they think that would work and, you know, not gone into fight with them, but just, I don't know, listen to what they had to say, explain to your side. This is, of course, true of all American culture at every level. But, Jay, I'm really, really glad you called because I I understand how looking at that you could go, oh, this must be happening and and draw certain conclusions. And, you know, it turns out that the real underlying story probably isn't there's reasons and you didn't have any way of knowing what they were because you're not involved in the world from day to day than that world from day to day. If we could all do that more and stop just like yelling at each other and jumping to conclusions about what everybody thinks and what their goals are, it would just, I don't know, be a better world. So um, question from JC in Las Vegas. Oh gosh, yes, of course. I get a question with two minutes left from JC in Las Vegas who always asks very good, but somewhat complicated questions. What can I offer to an owner who wants to sell, but they owe as much as their property is worth on the open market. They do have a below market rate, but the loan is fairly recent. So their total payments are almost as much as the property would rent for. They are not in default in their payments, but they have had problems in the past making the loan payments. The property does appear to be in good condition. So it started with, what can I offer that owner? Okay, so um, the first conclusion that I jumped to and that I think everybody who was listening who knew about these jumped to when I first saw this was, well, obviously this is a subject to. They own nearly full value. They have a low market rate. But then you got to the part about the payments that I would be taking on if I 
bought the property subject to the existing loan would be almost as much as the property would rent for, which means it's a negative cash flow situation. Because cash flow is not rent minus principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So sometimes you have to just say even a creative deal isn't a good deal. Um, I would explore it a little more and see if, I don't know, the, the depreciation, it sounds like this is an expensive house, is, is the depreciation that you'd be getting on taking the property over but having a net negative monthly cash flow, would the depreciation be so much it would offset that? There are some other things to look at, but sometimes sometimes deals just are not deals. So, yeah. Thanks for your question, JC. Uh, we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>